Good morning, good morning. We are in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8 this morning, but not, but not all of those chapters, just some of 6, all of 7, some of 8. So we'll, I give us a, I don't know, 5 to 2 odds we'll get through. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Tim's taking those bets in the corner, so that's the way we'll handle that. <clears throat> All right, so, so far in our study of Acts, uh, we have looked at several different folks. Uh, Peter jumps up on the day of Pentecost, preaches a sermon, boom, 3,000 people get saved. So in the space of a week, the church goes from 120 to 3,120. A couple days later, um, Peter preaches another sermon, boom, 2,000 more people get saved. So now we're up to 5,100. Um, and this creates, as you can imagine, some significant, real, logistical problems. I mean, this is boots on the ground, tactical problems for how do you help this many people, right? I mean, think about how awesome, just, it, we'll take just a second. Think about how incredibly awesome it would be if 5,000 people came to this campus this morning and wanted to get saved. Would that not be just unbelievable? And tomorrow morning in staff meeting, our staff would not have a clue what to do, right? So this is a couple weeks after 5,000 people show up and want to follow Jesus. And it's fantastic, but you, we need help. So early on in Acts chapter 6, the apostles get together and they go, all right, everybody that wants some help, raise your hand. You know, all the hands, you know, 24 hands go up, right? And they say, so how are we going to do this? And they come up with this philosophy of, we're going to set aside guys to do nothing other than serve all the people that just got saved. And that's how deacons came to be. If you ever wondered, it was just, they needed help. It was a tactical problem. We, we, we have more people to be served than we have servants, so we need people to be set aside and to serve. So guys like Philip, guys like Stephen, uh, they're listed early in Acts chapter 6. They come along and they just start serving. So what we see so far in this pattern of Acts is Peter preaches a sermon, thousands of people get saved. Peter preaches a sermon, thousands of people get saved. And now we come to persecution, right? Because where the gospel is preached, persecution will occur. So for some reason, here's your blank on the, at the top of your handout. For some reason, God loves to work through sermons. It's an incredibly odd delivery mechanism, right? To try to gather a whole bunch of people together to listen to one guy talk about a book that was written a couple thousand years ago. When you explain it like that, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But when the Holy Spirit shows up, it makes a whole lot of sense because he can use all sorts of things. So in today's text, we see a different reaction to a sermon. We see Stephen becoming the church's first martyr. Uh, martyr uh, is actually the Greek word for witness. Um, whenever you see the word martyr in the scriptures, it's the exact same word for witness, and it literally changed meaning in the early church. The early church, when Jesus used it, he said, you shall be uh, martyrios for me, you shall be witnesses for me. And it came to pass over a couple decades that everybody who was a martyrios for Jesus Christ got killed. So the meaning shifted from I tell people about Jesus to I die because I told people about Jesus. Right? And we have words that shift meaning in our, in our culture too, but this is one of those words. So we're in Acts chapter 6, and we'll start with verse 8. Here we go. And Stephen, full of faith and power. 
And I don't want to miss this little phrase because that's the underpinning for all of the rest of the stuff that happens in this story. Because sometimes we go, okay, that's fantastic. God just decided to do something. Well, he was full of faith and power. He, he was believing what he was supposed to believing, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you have a man that believes what he's supposed to be believing, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, watch out, really cool stuff happens. Okay? My definition of really cool is strange after we get through this text, but it's really cool. Here we go. He did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose uh, some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, this is just Roman Jews who were freed, and they hung around in Rome in this area. Uh, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from uh, Cilicia, disputing with Stephen. So we got arguments breaking out. Stephen is a great expositor. He's, he's preaching. He's teaching. Verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And I love it because the gospel, when it is presented in love, is irresistible. It is unbelievably powerful. But here's what I want you to understand is that the spirit was the reason for the irresistibility. I thought I created a word, irresistibility. It's not, I, it was already a word. Spell check, passed right over it, no problem. Okay, well. So this is not Stephen's brilliance. So when, when we see the Holy Spirit work through a sermon, it is not the result of the preacher. It is the result of the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to make sure we put credit where credit is due very firmly in that category. Verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So I want you to notice all the parallels from this point on between Stephen's life and Jesus Christ's life, okay? So we see, did, any, did, did anybody get paid to testify falsely against Jesus? And the answer is yes, quite a few. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people. Yep, that happened too. The elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. Did that happen to Jesus? Yep. Verse 13, they also set up false witnesses. Yep who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Is this not what they accused Jesus of as well? You're, you're trying to change Moses. You're trying to change things all around. Verse 15, And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of a what? Anybody have a different translation? The word is messenger. Messenger means angel. They're the exact same word in Greek. Um, that's what an angel does. An angel is a messenger from God. God gives the angel a message. The angel then goes and tells whomever needs to be told. That's, you, know, you see this in the story of Christmas, right? Gabriel shows up and talks to Joseph, scares him to death. Gabriel shows up, talks to Mary. You know, she starts singing a song. Various reactions result when angels show up. But they thought he had the face of an angel. Verse 7, chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest said, are these things so? All right, so Bud, being the preeminent theological scholar in the room that you are, I'm going to ask you a question, all right? If, if I walked up to you and said, Bud, I have heard that you've been talking about Jesus Christ and that you believe what he said, are these things so? Now, don't answer yet. What type of response do you think you would get from Bud? What do you think the answer would be? Does that not sound like a very simple question to you? Are these things so? What would you say, Bud? Yes, absolutely. Good answer. You got it? Theology 101, he gets an A. Stephen responds with 1,236 words. 
It's like, man, 1,236 words. Are these things so, Stephen? Let me tell you a story. <laughs> and he proceeds to start with Abraham and works his way through the bulk of the Old Testament. Uh, the, the knowledge and wisdom and understanding of the Old Testament that he must have had to, to put it all together in this amount of space. We, th we think 1,236 words, that's a long time. It took about five minutes to say. Summarize the whole Old Testament in five minutes. It's like, really? And he did a bang-up job. I mean, it's really, really good. So, <clears throat> here's what he talks about. And he said, verse 2, you ready? I got an amen already. That's all right. You go like, brethren and fathers, listen. He is respectful. He's not disrespectful yet. Yet. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, God said. And after that, they shall come out of me and serve this place. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. Has Stephen said anything as far as commentary-wise yet? Or is he just, he's just recounting history, right? He just, we're just telling the story of the Old Testament, right? So God shows up, has a conversation with Abraham, and Abraham kicks this thing off. So verses 9 through 16, he talks about the patriarchs being in Egypt. He talks about Joseph being sold into Egypt and how Pharaoh, and they go back and forth. And starting in verse 17, it says, uh, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, so he's connecting the original, says the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. And he tells the story of the Exodus. He tells the story of Moses developing and understanding. He, he comes down in verse 30, and when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. These are the stories that we have covered. Stephen's sermon provides a pretty close summary of the stories that we have taught so far in the Old Testament series. It's, it's really pretty good. Uh, really pretty good. Like I have any authority whatsoever to stand in judgment of Stephen's sermon here. Let me rephrase that. It is phenomenally excellent. Sorry, Stephen. Um, so we keep going. We keep going. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Remember, because the people of Egypt, the people of Israel did not want Moses originally. He's like, well, who made you king over us? This is, we already got a king. And we it's not going so hot, right? So we're not interested is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown the signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So, so far, Stephen is just recounting facts. He hasn't done anything other than just recounting facts. That Nobody in this room can disagree with any word that he has said so far, right? Here's the equivalent. The modern-day equivalent is that we have a guest speaker to come into our church and he starts reading the Bible. He just reads the Bible. Is anybody going to go, you're wrong? Well, no. 
you're just reading the Bible, right? You're just summarizing what's going on. So, verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Okay? He's still stating facts, but he's shifted. He's shifted very, very gently here. If you'll notice in your translation the word prophet, what's different about the word prophet? It's capitalized. Who's that talking about? He's talking about Jesus now. Now he's connecting the facts of the Old Testament with the reality that had just occurred in Jerusalem a couple weeks earlier. This is weeks, weeks ago. Jesus Christ had died and been buried and rose again. Weeks ago. This was fresh in everybody's mind. They brought him before the high priest. This is probably Caiaphas, the same guy that condemned Jesus. Caiaphas knows at this point who we're talking about. There's, There's no confusion here. Verse 38, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. He is setting up this idea of rejection. Right? God shows up, and what did the Israelites do? Reject. Right? Verse 40. Saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You remember the story of the golden calf? That's the story of the golden calf. Verse 41. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Now, a lot of the commentaries believe that Stephen is kind of, he, he's poking at the Sanhedrin right here, the ruling council of Israel, because the Sanhedrin rejoiced in the temple, the things that they had built with their own hands. They rejoiced in having this structure, just like their forefathers did with the golden calf. Verse 42, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, and it is written in the book of the prophets. And he goes on, and he comes to verse 44, and he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers... See, he keeps going back to the past. He keeps going back to the past. Having received it in turn and brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. So he's covered Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and he's covered um, Moses, he's covered David, verse 45, 46, uh, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon, now he gets to Solomon. So we're, we're ramping through the Old Testament here. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Whoa, we have a, we have a major problem for the Sanhedrin right here. We have a major problem. Because what did the Sanhedrin accuse Stephen of? believing that Jesus was going to tear down the temple. And Stephen starts quoting verses saying, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? God's saying here, you can't contain me in a building. I did put my Shekinah glory in one location for a time, but that was a short-term thing. That was never intended to be a long-term thing. And this, theologically, he, he has stopped reading Scripture <laughs> And he has started applying and interpreting, and, and the Sanhedrin is getting upset right now. We will see how upset they are in just a second. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And here he goes. In verse 51, he shifts gears. And you've all listened to sermons before where 
we're kind of riding along, we're going through the introduction, and everything's fine, and then all of a sudden, the preacher hits another gear. And hold on, I didn't know he was going there. He goes there. Here we go. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. These are the leading, ruling, religious leaders of the day. There is no higher earthly authority on the planet than the Sanhedrin. And he calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. And you know why he does? Because that's the same language God used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. Some things don't change. We are still stiff-necked and uncircumcised. <clears throat> so what does he say? You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. He built up this pattern of you rejected him in the Old Testament and you're doing this. you did the same thing with Jesus today. Isn't it beautiful how he just connects? I mean, it's the, the, the understanding of the grand story of redemption that Stephen had to have to put all of this together to see the pattern is amazing. And I'll take just a second here. If you have not read through the entire Bible to see that story, please do so. It is one of the most beautiful things you will ever read. Twilight ain't got nothing on this, guys, okay? <laughs> nothing, all right? It's just... No, I did not. Thank you for setting that up and clarifying. I appreciate that. Good. I did not read Twilight. I'm not going to read Twilight. There we go. Okay. Don't get me excited now. All right. So you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. What of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. So he's saying... you. You, our, our fathers killed the ones that told he was going to come, and you killed him when he came. I mean, this is, he's loaded for bear, as my grandfather would say. He's a big buckshot in this gun, okay? Y'all can Google that. You probably won't show up, though. Of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. You got to give this guy, he's got some cojones, okay? The... So, so let's just say for a second, anybody in here work in uh, the legal area of life, the legal area? You, you do, yes. All right, so have you ever seen, um, have you ever seen a defendant? Because that's what Stephen is right now, okay? The, the court has brought him, and they are questioning him. They ask him, are these things so? And he goes into this sermon. It's amazing. Have you ever seen a defendant light into the judge and the jury? You ever seen that happen? What do you think might possibly be the outcome if a defendant decided to accuse the judge and the jury of heinous murder, deceit, and treachery? You think it's going to help the defendant's case? I don't think it's going to help. I'm not a legal expert, okay? It's the, the fine print disclaimer at the bottom of this podcast, right? Uh, but I don't think that's going to help. Calling you a murderer? So let's make it a little easier. The cop that pulls you over for speeding you murderous, lying, thieving. <laughs> You're going to have a long weekend, okay? It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. All right. Verse 53. He's not done yet. He's almost done. Who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. I mean, it's just how he just throws the rook down and he wins the hand and this is it, right? We're done. He's done. So... A great summary here by David Guzik. He said, uh, Stephen's message is essentially twofold. First, God is no respecter of places. 
He's really not. Did God need the temple? No, man needed the temple to understand how to worship God. The temple was for us, to help us interface with God. The temple was not for God, to help God be more holy or be more anything. God, God is God. He can do whatever he wants to do. That was for us. He didn't need the temple. And then, second, Israel is guilty of what they've always been guilty of, rejecting God's messengers. Right? So this is, you know, you, Stephen has said, you're hung up on the wrong place, and you miss the right person. And that's a powerful message. So, verse 54, when they heard these things, they decided to let him go and give him commendations, for he was such a good Bible-loving Sunday school teaching deacon. Nope. I love the fact that the first deacon that ever opens his mouth in Scripture says, Jesus is awesome, and I'll die for him if I need to. Look what happens. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. So what does that mean? Literally, like you gnash at somebody with your teeth. They're biting him, right? I mean, think about this. How, How ridiculous. He has stirred them up into such a frenzy They want to bite him. Now, who in your house bites people? Two-year-old. Two-year-old, right? Where, the dog. Oh, man, alive, the dog. I didn't think of that. That's good. So here's my question. Is there any other place in Scripture where gnashing of teeth is mentioned? It's mentioned in hell. This is, this is massive condemnation. Verse 55, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing. We're not even going to go into why Jesus was standing. Jesus is sitting everywhere else in the Scripture when he's in heaven. Jesus is standing here at the right hand of God. Verse 57, They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. Now, don't miss this word. I, this is the thing that is really... So I try, to, I try to see a new theme each time I teach through a book. Okay? For me, this new theme in Acts is this one accord theme. Because you see the, the disciples being in one accord praying in the upper room. Right? You see the church being in one accord when Peter preaches at Pentecost. You see all these beautiful acts of, uh, of love and service and that they're one accord when they do this. And then Dr. Luke switches this word around and he says that those ran at him with one accord. They're unified in their attack on him. Verse 58, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and who later, after being converted, would be called Paul. Right? So Saul goes to Paul. Verse 59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound like anybody else you've read about in the Bible? I think Jesus said that. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Does that sound like anybody else you've read about in the Bible? Now, I don't know how strong your faith is, but when the first rock hits me, we just got really real. Because a bunch of old religious guys gnashing at me is going to wig me out quite a bit. But when you pick up rocks, 
I would pray that my faith would be strong enough to say, you know, Jesus is awesome. And then I can't imagine going, Lord, don't charge them with this crime. Um, Augustine said that uh, the, the persecution did not create the martyrs, it revealed them. You know, I, I hope that, that we have this type of faith. Um, so think about this. So there's been three big sermons in the book of Acts so far. The first, 3,000 people get saved. The second, 2,000 people get saved. The third, one guy gets killed. Now, you may have heard this phrase before, but the blood of the martyrs are the seeds of the church. So let's watch what happens. Now, Saul was consenting to his death. This is a strange Greek word. It does not just mean I agreed. In, in Acts 26, Paul is standing before Agrippa, and he says, I voted, meaning he was a member of the Sanhedrin, I voted for the deaths of many Christians. And more than likely, he was actually a voting member of the Sanhedrin at this point. This word consenting means pleased with the outcome. This is not a, I agreed with it. This is, I was pleased with it. It's a whole other level of acceptance, and I'm okay with this. Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. And for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So this is the impact of Stephen's death. Sign me up? I don't know. Verse 4 continues the impact of Stephen's death. Therefore, therefore, because of what just happened, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching. It's a really lousy translation, I hate to tell you. The word is not preaching. The word is actually evangelizing or spreading. Uh, the idea is that I'm just telling people about Jesus. Now, now, if you are a logical pagan looking at this story, right, and, and you see one man stands up and says, Jesus was the Messiah and you killed him and he dies for it, what do you expect everybody else who believes that to do? Stop saying that. That is the logical response. The gospel is not logical, okay? And praise God that it is not because it makes no sense that God would want to love us and die for us and reach out in our filth and save us. It makes no sense whatsoever. And I am so thankful that God does not make sense according to my logic because I'd still be lying around in my filth if it did. Verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with, here it is again, one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed, and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. How in the world 
do we go from signs and wonders to persecution to preaching to conviction to martyrdom to persecution to preaching to miracles to healing to joy? That makes no sense to me. Is that not awesome? That's what he does right there. I, I cannot explain this. I'm just teaching it. There's a difference. <laughs> okay? I'm going to read you something. If Stephen fell asleep, Stephen died, right, in this story. Everybody, we picked up on that, right? Okay. If Stephen fell asleep, the church had to wake up. If there had been any rose-colored optimism about quickly winning the Jewish people to their Messiah, that was gone because the church could not expect a triumph without a bloody battle. And this, this scene with Stephen dying sets the stage for the rest of the church. Okay? Church history changes right here because no longer is it stand up, preach a sermon, and thousands come to know Jesus. We won't see that again, literally. Literally. We won't see that again until the days of Billy Graham. Literally. That, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Everything changes with Stephen. But what happens to the gospel? Where was the gospel before Stephen? Jerusalem. Where is the gospel after Stephen? It's in Samaria. It's good enough for those half-breeds. No, that's us. That's us. I'm so thankful for a man that stood up and said what God told him to say. It's beautiful. So what's the point? Well, number one, God likes to use sermons. I still have not figured out why. He likes to use sermons. Persecution will come, and it all ends in joy. Boom. I love that. It all ends in joy. Because at the end days, when we're with Jesus, guess what? Joy. That was me attempting joy to the world, but I decided not to go the rest of the... Okay, cool. So, <laughs> there we go. So, what do I do with that? Well, number one, be ready to hear sermons. I know some of you are like, dang it, I don't like sermons. Well, I don't like all sermons either, but think about how much better they might be if we prepared to hear them as much as the man that prepared them to give them. So be ready. Right? The man of God is about to stand up and proclaim God's truth and speak into our lives. Flip over your handout. Go back to the top of the front side. You see the key thought? God's word plus the Holy Spirit equals great power. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. God's word plus the Holy Spirit equals great power. That's the lesson today.